we're getting rid of all the good stuff that we built in the 20th century, like democracy, a welfare state, and unions. But um, we're getting the huge TVs and like really nice coffee. So, and there doesn't really seem to be anything you can do about it. The rules of politics have broke. Liz Truss, who's just come to power, she campaigned as a free market neoliberal. The first thing she's done is bail out energy bills to the tune of 170 billion plus. If she didn't do that, she would lose the election in two years' time. In fact, she'd probably be removed within a year. TikTok is full of people promoting like hustle mindset. What does it mean to be us? It means to be a kind of competitive entrepreneur in every aspect of your life. Someone who has to be assessing every single aspect of your life in terms of profit and loss. Every single philosophical and religious tradition, the human culture has ever produced would say that's a horrible way to live that's like that's going to make you crazy and it's going to make everyone around you hate you hi i'm jeremy gilbert this is my friend alex williams say hello alex hello and uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about our new book hegemony now uh, the full title of the book is hegemony now how big tech and wall street won the world and how we win it back um although uh, do we know how to win it back we'll find out we'll find out yeah and um so we're going to talk about some themes from the book. Uh, in We've got six loose headings and some rough notes mm. to talk about some of the key ideas in the book. And we thought the first one we thought we would talk about is this idea that, uh, as we put it, the political class or the professional political class is in crisis right now and has been for several years. So I guess the question is what we mean by the political class what we mean when we call it sometimes the, the neoliberal, professional, technocratic political class and what some of those terms mean and how they can help us understand what's happening in politics and culture at the present time. So I think when we use this term political class, well, I'll say what I mean by it and maybe you, you sort of <laughs> add to it or qualify it because it's me who kept insisting on using it from early on. And it's the idea of the political class is an idea that various uh, sort of commentators, people from political science, political sociology, have come up with over the past few years, and it's a fair. It, it means, you know, as you it would expect from the term, it, it implies that somehow that politics in countries like Britain and the United States, other European countries, Australia, New Zealand, is run and managed by these um, a really specific sort of not really a class, to be honest, in the classic Marxian sense, more almost a sort of caste or a sort of subclass. But it's a set of professionals whose job is to manage the state, to manage the media, to um, manage big institutions. And, they, and the, the claim is that they are sort of separate from the broader public or, ev or even the sort of broader professional classes in some way that maybe equivalent people wouldn't have been, say, 50 years ago. That's maybe a bit contentious, but that's how I understand it. My, my understanding is that really since the, about the 1970s, this specific class of sort of professional political administrators and managers and right up to party leaders and senior journalists has emerged. And it's emerged partly because politics has become increasingly detached from any kind of real democratic processes over the past 50 years. It's no longer the case that politicians are really sort of representing mass movements or mass parties. Really what they're doing is they're sort of, they're acting on behalf of much more powerful interests and they're trying to sort of manage the expectations and um, behaviours of most of the population. That's how I understand it anyway. What, what, do, you, what do you think? I, th I think the political class is really kind of inseparable from the rise of neoliberalism. And we'll, we'll go into what, what we mean by that shortly. Um, but certainly I think it, it, it comes with the idea that politics is no longer something that 
anybody who's involved in, I don't know, activism or, you know, being, being active within a political party or a social movement or a labor union um, can get involved in. Uh, it's that the world has become so complex, you need a particular uh, set of training, skills, knowledges, um, and approaches to manage the levers of society. So those kind of claims are very, very familiar if you think about, you know, the basic um, operations of sort of neoliberal management uh, and is of a piece with, you know, this idea that um, the world, the economy in particular, and also sort of politics and the media is too complex and too important to be, you know, open to any kind of democratic contention. That, you know, whilst you might be able to have some limited choice, you're going to end up with uh, somebody from this particular uh, class fraction, the professional political class. And you can see that in terms of backgrounds. You can see that in terms of the things like the domination of, uh, you know, Oxbridge as a background, in particular degrees like PPE, um, like literally PPE at Oxford um, accounts for something like 75%. Yeah. For people outside the UK, that's this this degree that you do at Oxford University called Politics, Philosophy and Economics, yeah. where notoriously you don't study them as some interdisciplinary programme. Yeah. You do basically a year's worth of politics, a year's worth of philosophy, a year's worth of economics, and you come out knowing very little about anything. Yeah, but, you, but you come out famously knowing how to bullshit. Yeah, you know how, how to how blag. To, you know how yeah. to, you, you, yeah, you know how to kind of argue your way around something that you know only maybe one little thing about. I mean, to be fair, there are good people who've done PPE. I've got mm. good colleagues who teach on that programme <laughs> at Oxford, so I'm not saying everybody, but the program, but, that, but it is, it is it's kind become, of notorious. It's, yeah, it's become a finishing school for the, for the you know, the British uh, political class. I mean, you know, you could think uh, maybe, you know, there, there are different institutions in places like America or France or Germany that might be fulfilling a similar role in terms of acting as this kind of um, yeah, Enarch in France, the yeah. Ivy League in the States. Yeah. But I mean, in a way, I mean, Enarch in France is much more, is explicitly professional. Mm. It's like the, the idea is you are literally going there to to learn, to become a member of the political mm. class. There isn't this sort of pretense that you're learning something about, mm. you know, bigger sets of ideas. And the Ivy League is a bit, is a little bit different, I think. It's a little bit mm. more, um, partly because there's, there's, there's more genuine respect for some notion of a sort yeah. of intellectual achievement than there is historically at Oxford. But um so what do we mean when we say the political cr class today is in crisis? Well, I think I think I think one th I want us to say one thing about just really nailing like the kind of historical emergence yeah. of them because I think everybody sort of knows what we're talking about when we talk about the political class. We're talking about this kind of this set of people that everybody hates and laughs at and they're mocked and satirized in TV shows like Veep in the States and mm. the thick of it in in Britain. But it's kind of easy to forget now. There is this moment in the kind of late '80s, early '90s when these got this is the, they're just first emerging, and people think they're really cool. Like people are actually writing articles about how, yeah, the professionalization of politics is a good thing. Like for the, in exactly the terms you were describing. So I just want to emphasise, like there is this moment when these guys are kind of a new phenomenon, and they seem to be they're kind of exciting and cool, and you know. W w um, What's the guy's name? Clinton's like big advisor, George Stephanopoulos. Mm, he's like a big, mm, he's like mm. a sexy culture hero for liberals. <laughs> and these guys, you know, these guys setting up think tanks yeah. and, you know, triangulating. I mean, you, can, you can consider the West Wing as, yeah. as, as the kind of... The West Wing, yeah. Is the peak of the professional political class imaginary. Yeah, exactly. Where you exactly. get smart people from very yeah. particular backgrounds who come together to deliver 
purely technical solutions to technical problems. Yeah, well, the West Wing is a fantastic example because the West Wing is all about how this group of people who see themselves as having, in some way, historically from the left, are clearly not going to implement a programme which is anyway left-wing. No. If they ever encounter people making actually left-wing demands, they famously scream at them hysterically about how their demands are unrealistic and can't possibly be met because they would uh, break the rules of free trade, etc. And yet they're fundamentally good, decent people who are doing the best they can and creating the, the best of all possible mm. worlds. And yeah, that's the kind of myth of the West Wing. And to some extent, to answer the question, what does it mean to say the political crisis? I mean, sorry, that's the myth of the political class, which yeah. the West Wing expresses. And to say it's in crisis is to say, well, up to around 2008, really mm. about up to around the time, both of the financial crisis, but also when Obama gets elected, uh, as the, Obama is like the, the fulfilment of the West Wing fantasy, you know, the idea that you're going to get this guy who clearly has no substantial politics, actually, and just a lot of good intentions, but somehow he's going to heal the nation and make everything better for people. And he must be a good guy because he's, he's not white, but he went to Harvard Law School, mm. yeah, which would be the equivalent of PPE at Oxford yeah. in Britain. But then, then you have the financial crisis. And our, basically, our argument is really since 2008, these guys have not really been able to fulfil their social role of basically keeping the rest of us more or less happy with the way in which society is changing mm. or the ways in which it's not changing. And, um, and that's basically because really from the moment when this professional political class starts to emerge uh, in the early 80s, Right, for, right through the subsequent decades, mostly governments in places like the States and Britain have been doing stuff that most people, if you ask them, like, don't really approve of. Mm. And most people, if you ask them, is it a good idea to privatise all our public services? They're going to say no. And they did say no, like in opinion poll after opinion poll. They've been saying no since the mid 80s. Is it a good idea to cut taxes for the rich? more than for anyone else. No one's going to say, yes, that's a good idea, but that's what they've done. Is it a good idea to pursue a programme which re restricts the power of workers to organise and which generally redistributes wealth and income and assets from the poor to the rich? No, no one is going to say, yes, that's a good idea. But yet these guys, the job of these guys over the past few decades has been to keep us all on board with that programme. And the way in which they kept us on board with it, I would say, is basically through um, engineering a society in which despite rising inequality, despite a general sense of alienation and dislocation and dissatisfaction, despite all that, most people experienced year on year a, a, an increase in their capacity to consume. You, know, you could buy more stuff. The stuff was getting cheaper because it was coming from China, because you had cheap credit, mm. and cheap credit cards and various forms you of low-cost debt. You could finance everything off your mortgage. Exactly. Yeah. And then up, but after 2008, our argument is, after the 2008 financial crisis, basically you can't offer as many people all those opportunities to consume and to kind of work for relatively decent wages and to buy loads of stuff. Mm. Young people in particular, you know, poor people, poor people of colour in the United States, you know, these various social groups start being removed from the, the kind of circle of people who can be offered all of these compensations for what's basically a political programme which only benefits the rich. And uh, and then you, there's a period between 28 and 2015, there's a period of kind of relative sort of tumult and transition. Then you hit 2015, you get the election of Donald Trump on the basis of this kind of mad populist uh, agenda, but which is clearly driven by resentment of the political class. You get mm -hmm. you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign really kind of breaking the 
uh, the coherence of the Democratic Party's coalition and the dominance of the liberal political class over that coalition. You get the vote for Brexit, which is driven by similar things. You get Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader of the party. Mm. So I think that's what we mean when we say the political class goes into crisis. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, as, as we kind of argue in the book, is that what, what happens around this time and what, and what really kind of, I think, demonstrates what this crisis of the political class looks like is this feeling amongst politicians, um, leading media commentators, um, and, and associated people that the rules of politics have broken? Yeah. That in the period from about the late, you know, mid to late 80s through to 2008, and, and maybe a little bit beyond, um, politics had a set of rules which they endlessly kind of wanted to delineate and, and draw out what did work, what didn't work. You know, you had to wear a, a certain kind of suit. You had to have, you know, um, slick hair. You had to have, you had to speak in the right way. You had to be mediagenic. You had to be, you know, rigorously polite at all times um, within the public sphere. You know, certain policies were on the agenda. Certain policies were off the agenda. Um, and it's this sort of thing that led the, you know, your... Uh, your West Wing kind of uh, liberal neoliberals to suggest that certain arguments are just off the table, right? Yeah. They're, they're just ridiculous. It's outside of politics. You you, you can't argue for that. Nationalisation, yeah. expanding labour organisation, mm -hmm. real redistribution of wealth, yeah. public ownership. Yeah. You know anything that's bad. For, anything yeah. that suggests yeah. that profits might be have have limits to yeah. them. All of that off the table. And what you exactly? And what you find in the kind of in 2016 is all of these media commentators basically saying, uh, and and you know uh, senior academics, particularly at, at the kind of institutions that train the professional political class, politicians themselves, basically saying politics is broken. And it's incomprehensible. And it's incomprehensible, the exactly. <laughs> the all these yeah. Guardian, like, yeah. all these Guardian, it's, these Oxbridge educated, yeah. these New York Times commentators in 2016. That's their line. Their line is, this is completely incomprehensible. No yeah. sane person could yeah. possibly it's, understand it's, what is yeah. happening. It's, it's like some kind of alien force has taken over yeah. politics. And, 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 and the kind of the rules of political physics have changed. And suddenly everybody's floating in the air and, and you know, <laughs> growing tentacles for no reason out of their face. I mean, the way we would see it is that, um, you know, the, the rules of politics as, as set out by the professional political class were always completely dubious and incredibly localised to a certain power formation, having control of, you know, really the kind of hegemonic structure of society. Um, and under those terms, it worked. But under kind of global, you know, world historical terms, it was, it was clearly always, always a nonsense. So... On that level, um, I think you can understand the political class being in crisis is partly that they don't, they didn't know what to do. And if you look at the kind of the scions of this class today, and you know some of them are still in power, it's not the case that the members of the political class have, have completely lost all state power. I don't think that's the case. Instead, it's that to maintain their power, they've had to junk the kind of the rules of normal politics that they ha had instilled in them over, over many years. They've had to become, to some extent, populists, uh, you know, whether to the right or to the left. Um, you know, and you can see that in the UK with uh, Liz Truss, who's just come to power. And what's the first thing she's done? Well, she campaigned as a uh, sort of neo-Thatcherite, uh, ultra-free uh, market neoliberal. The first thing she's done is bail out uh, energy bills to the tune of 170 billion plus. Um, 
You know, if she didn't do that, she would lose the election in two years' time. In fact, she'd probably be removed within a year. Yeah, I mean, and comparably, Joe Biden has, you know, despite all our most pessimistic expectations of six months ago, got through mm. some kind of a reform programme and some forgiveness of student debt when it really looked like that wasn't possible. And when that kind of thing, that kind of thing was definitely outside the rules of politics as mm. they existed. You know, yeah. One of the storylines in the West Wing is the what is these guys in the West Wing become really pleased with themselves so they've got a plan to make college a bit cheaper but <laughs> the idea of those guys forgiving debt would just be completely off the table so something has happened there that's fairly significant but I guess um, and to, I mean to some extent what they've had to do I mean they're having to break the rules they're having to sort of detach themselves from what has been this sort of ruling ideology mm. for several decades uh, neoliberalism which I think we'll talk about yeah. in just a second. But I think, um, I mean, what's interesting about figures like Truss, or arguably Boris Johnson and, Bi and, and Biden, I think, is they, they do, obviously, they are absolute lifelong members of this political class. But also, they're sort of outside it to the extent that, or on the fringes of it, to the, to the extent that they are, the, they are such sort of cynical or non-ideological players that they have been willing to adapt now to a new set of circumstances and to do something different. Mm. You know, what was really striking about their immediate predecessors, especially the people like Gordon Brown in the UK, Obama in the States, who people who were supposedly coming from the left but were in charge when the financial crisis hit, was that even the total meltdown of the financial system at that time couldn't mm. pull them away from their complete mm. commitment to this set of neoliberal norms. But we should probably say what we mean by neoliberal norms, what we yeah. mean by sort of neoliberal ideology and, and what, what it means to say that it's been hegemonic. Because that also has something to do with an answer to the question I'm sure people watching this are going to be asking themselves, which is, which is well, weren't there always political elites? Like, haven't there always been cynical political elites? And weren't there sort of, you know, clergy and running France on, for Louis XIV, you know, weren't yeah. there? And what about, what about the kind of British establishment of the 1950s? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we should say something about what we mean by neoliberalism yeah. and say something about what we mean by, you know, how we think that this political class was distinctive to it. Mm. So what is neoliberalism? Um, it's a term that is incredibly controversial. It's only recently that mainstream kind of media commentators have begun to admit that neoliberalism is actually a real thing and it's not just something that the left has made up as a kind of boo-boo word to, yeah. to kind of throw around um, against their, their opponents. Um, but neoliberalism is a, is a complicated kind of thing and it's difficult to easily define, but we're gonna ha we'll, we'll quickly do it. So for a lot of people, uh, neoliberalism is a, is a set of ideas. Um, and this is certainly an approach that has you know, found a lot of success within academia. And it's one which is, is focused on particularly the works of uh, the thinkers associated with the Mont Pelerin Society, which was an early think tank founded to kind of challenge the post-war settlement of, of you know, social democracy and, and embedded liberalism. Uh, and Keynesian economics. Um, this would be the, the sort of ideas of people like uh, Friedrich von Hayek, um, uh, Milton Friedman, and, and, and associated uh, thinkers. Now, we don't disagree that these, these thinkers um, played an important role in, in, in establishing neoliberalism, but we don't think that, that when we're thinking about you know, what is neoliberalism, that it's as simple as it's this set of ideas and these ideas were simply implemented by politicians when the time became appropriate for them to do so. 
Um, instead, we're interested in something we call actually existing neoliberalism. Actually existing neoliberalism is essentially the system of power that neoliberal forces built over time. And obviously this system of power is, is slightly different in, in different localities, different regions, different nations, different cities, but it has some uh, central commonalities. And, uh, you know, this is why we would talk about, you know, in the years from, from 1980 to about uh, 2015, 16, you could say more or less, with, with a few exceptions, that, that the world was uh, existing in a neoliberal hegemony. And we're going to explain what, what hegemony is um, in an, uh, uh, later. But um, a neoliberal hegemony means that there's a set of ruling policies and there's a set of you know a particular kinds of uh, people, particular class fractions, um, who are able to secure, if not all, then most of what they want from the world, their political interests. Um, and this you know this this system of rule this this neoliberal hegemony um creates certain uh, common senses so part of what we're talking about when we're talking about the crisis of the political classes their ability to project what they're saying to project this kind of neoliberal policy agenda as being natural and right has collapsed they still have, often they're still in power but they have they they've had to uh, endorse or prosecute other other positions, way more populist, much more interventionist um, than they were than they were trained to deliver. Um, so it's on it's on this level that we can think about, you know, that we we're in a kind of global crisis of neoliberal hegemony, and the political class uh, have either been pushed out or they're having to effectively become much more populist to try and find some kind of solution to it. Uh, but as we argue, the political class are very, very poorly adapted to actually deliver solutions that are on the scale of the kind of crises that we're now facing. Yeah, I think on neoliberalism, we should probably do a kind of quick thumbnail explanation mm. for people who don't know the term. I mean, generally speaking, when we talk about neoliberalism, we're talking about this set of ideas which says... Uh, human beings are basically fundamentally individuals who are naturally in competition with each other and mm. also that's a good thing and so what governments should do is they should do everything they can to encourage people to, and enable people to compete with each other mm. uh, whether that's in school or in the labor market or in any other context and what that means governments should do in practice usually is uh, kind of as we've already said they should cut taxes especially for the rich so mm. people can work hard and aspire and earn lots of money and that's how you advance yourself in the world and um, they should privatise public assets uh, as far as possible because it's better if everything is owned privately and everything is done for profit. Mm. They should, um, they should, uh, as far as possible, they should suppress labour organisation because labour organisation is bad because it interferes with the ability of entrepreneurs to compete with each other if efficiently and make lots of money. And it encourages in people these kind of collectivist ideas where they expect to do things together and reap rewards together. And that just suppresses everybody's kind of mm. entrepreneurial spirit. Now, those are the sort of core ideas, if you like, of neoliberal ideology. They're the ideas that appear in the writings of these economists and philosophers like Hayek from the 1930s onwards mm. who are reacting against the success of communism in the Soviet Union, the New Deal in the United States, the social democratic policies which are being promoted by uh, Western European governments after World War II. Um, 
Uh, one interesting way of, of thinking about that term neoliberalism, I always think, is to think about how it relates to the term liberalism. So the liberal tradition, which is really the dominant political tradition in places like the United States um, over the past few centuries, also tends to say that, to, to think that what it means to be a human being is fundamentally to be an, an individual, that individuals are by nature sort of selfish and acquisitive, but also entrepreneurial. And the way you have a good society is you encourage those tendencies and sort of facilitate them and try not to get in the way of them. Uh, the thing about the neoliberals is they, they also agree that it's better to have a society where everybody, as many people as possible, behave like competitive entrepreneurs. But they also have the experience of the previous 50 years has taught them that's not natural, that's not spontaneous. Mm. So instead, what you have to have is governments that as far as possible will force people to behave that way. So you have kind of instead of having welfare, you have workfare policies like you actively force you know, teachers to, to compete with each other within schools or schools to compete with each other within uh, the education sector and, you, and you know, students to compete with each other within uh, schools and colleges. So you really try to enforce these sort of norms and ideas. The thing is, the usual story, as Alex was saying, the usual story in most academic writing, not all, but most academic writing about neoliberalism is, well, there are these very clever, very right-wing philosophers like Hayek, and they wrote these books, and these books were read by people like Thatcher and Reagan and their advisors, and so they did neoliberalism. And our argument is more in the tradition of other Marxist scholars like David Harvey, I think, which would say, well, that's all kind of, that's all true, that's all important. But it's also the case that, you know, these guys were considered pretty wacky, like right, even by people like Richard Nixon, like right up until the mid 70s. And it's not really until the social, economic, political crisis of the mid 70s that their ideas tend to get taken up. And their ideas get taken up, not because and people particularly agree with them in principle, but their ideas get taken up because they provide a convenient excuse to carry out a lot of policies which will do things which some really powerful institutions want done, namely, you know, deregulating international financial yeah. markets, facilitating international globalisation of manufacturing, which end up being crucial to the rise of, of the computer industry, for example. And that's and so when we talk about actually existing neoliberalism. We're pointing a little bit to the distinction between the kind of theoretical neoliberalism of people like Hayek and the kind of actual policy programs that have been implemented over the past few and I think decades. What's really, you know, I think what's really important in terms of actually existing neoliberalism and, and you know, why, why was it able to effectively win the crisis of the 1970s when you have this, you know, a situation that's kind of familiar to us today, actually, of, of, of sort of increasing uh, stagflation, energy crisis, um, and, and a variety of other crises kind of you know, destroying the stability of the previous 30 years. Now, why was neoliberalism able to win? Well, partly, yes, it was well organized through, through networks of, of think tanks. And yes, it did have uh, you know, well-developed ideas, including into policy proposals. But it was also the fact that uh, you know, politicians and business people were able to combine these ideas with actual kind of you know changes occurring in the world during this period and into the early 80s. Um, in particular, you know we, we have to think about you know why was it possible to defeat the uh, labor movements uh, you know in the global north? Well, partly it was through the use of state power by people like Thatcher and Reagan. You know uh, Reagan against the air traffic controllers, Thatcher against the miners. Um, but it was also because there were there were broader economic changes happening anyway. These are partly around you know deindustrialization, but that's related in turn to 
globalization and the ability of you know because of innovations in the world of kind of uh, global shipping to have far more kind of products being you know constructed and and, and manufactured in other parts of the world to the kind of traditional manufacturing centers um, similarly you know the ability to coordinate global trade um, depends upon things like early computerization so these technologies could have been used for other purposes but they certainly um, had utilization for neoliberalism and actually existing neoliberalism wouldn't perhaps have been possible uh, without them so it's not just about the ideas um, it's also about the kind of the changes in the material structure of the world that allow these ideas to be kind of combined and uh, lashed together with, with, with other forces in order to create uh, the kind of situation which leads by the 1990s um, and you know after the collapse of the Soviet Union effectively to global uh, neoliberal hegemony. And it's that that's in, that's in crisis today and it's that crisis that in turn has led the political class to scramble to try and um, adopt uh, various uh, new ideas in order to try and maintain their power. One of the questions we ask in the book, and we do put it in exactly these terms, is who won the 20th century? Mm. Like who actually established hegemony mm. out of the crisis of the late 20th century? So it's a, it's a very widely accepted idea that after World War II, there's a, there's a rough kind of consensus that emerges in the Western European liberal democracies, the United States, Australia, etc., according to which governments will, will ally themselves with the United States against the Soviet Union. They will not allow revolutionary communism to develop in their countries, but they will promote relatively high levels of economic equality, rising wages and expanding public sector, expanding welfare state, etc. And then for various reasons we don't have time to get into, this all breaks down at the end of the 60s and there's a kind of crisis. Then in the early 70s, we would say, as, as sort of history, contemporary historians, that the early 70s, is, the 70s remains a crucial decade for understanding the present because the 70s is really the last time. There's a, it, it's really an open question. Like, which is, is some form of socialism going to defeat capitalism in the global contestation between systems? Now, you've got, you know, you've got McGovern going into the election, I think, in 72, like seriously talking about like 100% inheritance tax on, you know, over $400,000 or something. You've got, there's a, there's, there's, it looks like there's a real chance that sort of capitalism is finished. So if you look at who are the various contending parties at that moment in history, and ask yourself, well, who actually ended up getting the world that they wanted? Mm. Um, it, none, the kind of headline players at that moment, well, none of them did really. You know, the, the communists obviously didn't end up with the world they wanted by the 1990s. The, the new left and the kind of counterculture didn't, because what they wanted was a world in which, you know, the, the public sector and, so, and you know, corporations or what have you would be democratised, but that, you know, you'd have a very kind of collectivist uh, way of life. You know, that was the idea of the communes, etc. Um, the, but the conservatives of that moment certainly don't get the world they wanted. They didn't want a world in which everything, all, all manufacturing had shifted to China and when gay people could get married. You know, if you'd, if you'd have told somebody like an American conservative in 1972, that's where we're heading, that would have seemed like a nightmare to them. That's what they were afraid of. So who did get the world they wanted? We would argue you, you, you look around the world in sort of 1972, you know, you, you pinpoint some social constituencies down there on the ground, you know, who actually, you look at everything they seem to want, 30 years later, they're going to have got all of it. 
what you're going to look at is the emerging IT industry in Silicon Valley. Those guys with their weird mixture of like libertarianism, but pro-corporate philosophy, you know, their advocacy for free trade, but they're also their belief in their rights to a certain kind of monopoly. Mm. If you've written the code on something, they're going to get the world they wanted. Also, the right faction of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. They're also going to end up getting the world they want. We don't have time to do much in the book apart from allude to that. But, but importantly, of course, those guys are going to be working hand in glove to a certain extent. You know, you don't get the modern IT industry without cheap manufacturing in China. And you don't get the massive, you know, growth of the Chinese economy without Apple building all their computers there. So they're going to get the world they want. And also certain sections of finance capital, you know, the banks, the people who in 1972 were sitting there feeling really annoyed that they've had to sub be subject to all these regulations on their activity since the 1940s, and they really would like to get rid of them all. They and um, and also stop paying so much tax, and you know, and stop having to negotiate with unions. Like those guys, those guys are all going to end up getting the really. We are now living in the world that those guys wanted. But who's the absolutely the most central constituency there? The ones who really very clearly sort of determine the direction of travel, the ways in which our lives have changed and stay the same. Really, the, the central players is Silicon Valley. You know, I, I first sort of started to become aware of that. You know, I was teaching cultural studies in a university in London from the mid-90s onwards. And I would always ask students, what do you think defines our time? What defines our present compared to the past? And for the first sort of five years of my teaching career, the answer would always be something about social attitudes or attitudes on sexuality or something happening in the culture, something happening on TV. Then from about the early 2000s onwards and right up to the present, the only answer you get is internet, computers, phones. It's technology. It's the products of Silicon Valley, which people see as defining the time that we live in. Now, all that leads us to the conclusion that we have to think quite carefully about, well, what is it these guys have done? Like, what is the form of capitalism these guys have produced? And what are the technologies that they've used mm. in order to extend their power around the globe? So really, this leads into the, the question of uh, that we do, we would kind of understand under the term platforms. So what is it that the platforms are? How do they have power? So when we're thinking about platforms, obviously, you know, the term is now most associated with technology platforms, often uh, social media platforms, for example. Like the one you're consuming this bit of media on. And, and the, <laughs> the, basic, the basic idea is, and, and, and this, is, this can be much more expansively applied ultimately than just technology platforms, um, is that a platform is a kind of system that operates as a basis for other kinds of things to, to operate. This, this sounds very general. Um, so in terms of a social media platform, you, you know, what is it that the platform owners provide? It is a set of uh, tools and technologies that enable uh, other kind of entities, users, um, to uh, use that platform to create and share content, you know, video content, text content, photographs, um, and many, many more. So uh, this is fundamentally the reason why you know why have they had so much influence well you know partly it's because they've become the most profitable companies in the world um, and therefore you know obtain this kind of leading edge of capitalism as a result so they kind of their practices their ideas become uh, leading within the kind of overall capitalist formation but it's also just in the last 20 years what has transformed most people's lives and not just in the global north but literally globally yeah. um, the most it is the internet mobile phones, um, and all of the associated technologies that come with it. And that's because they've radically transformed the way in which 
you know, society is to some extent organized, understood the way that information flows, um, and particularly the way in which uh, we kind of um, understand our behavior and how we practically behave. Um, because these platforms, in a way that we kind of previously discussed as being, you know, within this domain of kind of passive consent, you know, this idea that you sort of, once you have power within a society, you can lay down these kinds of contours that, that, that emerge from all of these different kind of forms, from sort of public policy to, to education. Um, and these kind of create a path of least resistance that most people will, will simply travel down. Um, and technology platforms are, are, are maybe the best contemporary example of this. You know, why is it that people behave in the way that they do on particular platforms? Well, it's because the platforms are designed for them to behave in those in those ways. And and you know, these platforms are relatively open ended. They they end up being redesigned around the ways people behave. So it's it's not a completely unilateral process, um, but it is a process which is designed above all to create profits for platform owners. Profits come from engagement. What is it that drives engagement? Well, you know, when we actually see behind uh, the kind of glossy facade presented by the platform owners, we often find you know, deeply sinister results, fascinatingly sinister results. You know, for example, Facebook discovered you know, that one of the things which really drives engagement, i.e. people staying on the platform, sharing stuff, creating content, creating linkages, all of the stuff that ultimately drives uh, shareholder value for Facebook, uh, now Meta, um, you know, often it's anger. And they literally, in terms of the way they weighted their algorithm, um, it was revealed uh, earlier this year that uh, one of the things which they did was, um, in terms of the emotional reaction icons that you can uh, put on posts, they weighted the anger um, icon something like four times more heavily than any other icon. So they were literally creating a situation in, in which... the emoticon? Yeah, the yeah, the reacts, the reacts, yeah. the angry face. A post that had the angry face was given four times the weighting in terms of how often and how prominently <laughs> it would appear in people's feeds. So they were literally, um, you know, in, in various other ways, that's just the kind of the most obvious example, um, creating a culture, a communicative culture, a political culture in which, you know, anger would travel further than any other kind of political... Um, Emotion, and this is just one of the most obvious ways in which they were able to... And, you know, their interest in that is not that they are supporters of Donald Trump or uh, the January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol in, in the United States. It's just that they like money. Then they want, they want profits, and they get that through engagement. So this would be one example of, yeah. how, of how these kind of platforms are kind of um, exerting power. The, so platform power is the ability to kind of, you know, determine uh, the... In the case of social media, for example, the velocity of different kinds of, of information, ultimately. You know, how far does it travel? And, uh, you know, they can literally do this by tweaking and manipulating the various weightings of different elements within their algorithm. Um, so this would be one way in which these kinds of uh, platforms have uh, amassed huge amounts of power. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I'm not going to add anything to that. I'd just say I think our approach is also that you know the question of what you can do about platforms or do with them mm. our approach would be consistent sort of consistent with our general approach would be to say well i mean we're not just going to abolish them i mean I know that there's a whole tendency there's a tendency of kind of utopian criticism which thinks we can just get rid of them mm. um that um it's they're not completely unusable by radical forces 
therefore do please follow, follow us on Twitter and uh, subscribe to my podcast. So, um, but um, they're also, also, I mean, it, it clearly is, does have to be a political objective in the next few decades, the, the socialisation of platforms. It's clearly not, um, it's clearly not credible for progressive forces and progressive politics to have these hugely important institutions kind of controlled by a tiny handful of individuals and shareholders in, in Silicon Valley. And I think in a broadly Marxian vein, we're pretty sceptical of people in the states in particular, sort of liberal political thinkers who seem to think that you can just do antitrust legislation against them. You can just regulate them to stop them behaving that way because their behaviours, ultimately the things that people don't like about their behaviour are just consistent with the unregulated, the unlimited pursuit of mm. capital accumulation. You know, that is capitalism. I mean, the, the sort of fascinating thing about the platforms, though, is that there's absolutely nothing in the technological infrastructure, which means they, they need or even ought to be you know, operated no. for capital accumulation. And often, the interesting thing is, they weren't originally. Yeah. If you look at Google, the people, you know, the organisation, the company that, that, that kind of invented ad tech and, and the kind of attention economy online, you know, initially... Uh, you know, they receive funding from various organizations, like the CIA and other organizations. <laughs> yeah, good social, good public, yeah. public organizations yeah. like the CIA. Um, to, to develop their algorithms, which were going to be able to kind of organize information um, in, in terms of searching online in a much more effective way. But they then had to work out, well, how do we make money from this useful technology? And they came, you know, and, and, and so this, uh, similarly with, with organizations like Facebook, uh, YouTube and so on, um, you know, the the technology often comes first and then afterwards it has to be retrofitted uh, to capitalism to deliver, uh, you know, huge amounts of growth and ultimately to, to deliver profits uh, for shareholders. Um, so the technology is n certainly not inherently capitalistic, although its its present form is, is, you know, everything you hate about it, you know, is because it is capitalist and, and not necessarily because... Uh, the technology is surveilling you as kind of critics like uh, Shoshana Zuboff want to kind of claim um, from a kind of uh, sort of li traditionally liberal perspective. Um, our issue is not that these platforms are examining our information or, or gathering our information. It's that they are doing so through uh, capitalistic means and, and entirely organised around, around the profit motive. All right, good. So... We keep saying, we keep talking about this idea that neoliberalism becomes hegemonic in over the course of the 1980s, really, and that that hegemony has in some way been in crisis mm. since around 2015. And what we mean by that is really we're trying to think about, we're trying to use that term to think about what it, the particular ways in which sets of ideas and practices and social and political interests can occupy a certain kind of position of power mm. uh, in society, both at a global level, at a national level, at a, re at a regional level. Because, I mean, the thing with neoliberalism is, well, that set of ideas we were talking about as defining neoliberalism, it does... Um, it gets, there are small groups of people, maybe in some of the right-wing political parties, maybe even in the parts of the Labour Party and the mm. Democratic Party, um, in the Labour parties in places like Australia and New Zealand as well, who really believe it. They really come to believe that this is the best way to run a capitalist society. That they, mm. they come to believe that there's no chance of a transition away from capitalism in the long term, 
that even the kind of post-war ways of managing capitalist society where you protect large areas of social life from the market and from competition, you have services like education are considered to be something outside of the logic of capitalism. Instead, they come to believe that the best way to run a capitalist society is neoliberalism. But most people never really believe that. As I said before, most people never really uh, actually accept that as a proposition. And they don't really like... They, most people, if you if you ask them again from about the mid eighties onwards, all the evidence is if you ask people like, do you think that you know Reaganomics is producing the kind of society you want your children to grow up in? Most people will say no, no, it isn't. Um, whereas probably in the, if you ask people a similar question, kind of twenty years previously, if you ask people in the mid sixties, most people in America like, do you endorse the great you know the Great Society program and the continuation of the New Deal? Most people, you know, there'll be lots of dissent, and, uh, but most people are going to broadly say yes. So this, this gives rise to a sort of a paradox or an, or an enigma, maybe, which is, you know, if, if neoliberalism and its kind of concrete policies were never popular, never had mass appeal, how was it able to achieve effectively global domination? Um, and, and there's various answers that are possible to this. So one answer would be, and this is not an answer we agree with, is just that uh, it just coerced everybody you know, it, it, it physically imprisoned, beat up um, everybody who, who could resist it. I mean, that's part of it. And that certainly like, is a part of it, I mean, it, of the, the, the first real official neoliberal yeah. program is implemented in Chile yeah. by the government, which by the Pinochet, Pinochet government, yeah. which is, you know, overturns Allende's socialist government with a military coup backed by the United States. Um, in, in as, as Alex said, in the UK, I mean, the Thatcher government really has to militarise the police. And it was effectively and, a civil, yeah. effectively a, a small-scale civil war. Yeah, it was. They had to yeah. go to war on the urban black communities, on trade unions, on the, the legacies of the counterculture. Like, all these people had to be physically attacked with police truncheons mm. over the course of several years um, in order to smooth the path for the mm. deregulation of financial markets. But that's but, not clearly the, the that that clearly is not the full story. Yeah, that's that, an important strand within it. But it's not the full story because then you get to the point of well, by the time you get to Blair and Clinton, yeah, they're still doing some coercive measures, but it certainly doesn't seem to be on the same scale. How is it that neoliberalism gets ever more kind of deeply entrenched and embedded within kind yeah. of political culture and and beyond? Um so you're left with this kind of this 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 kind of uh, paradox or enigma, but I think the answer to that is something like hegemony. So we should probably define what is hegemony. So hegemony, as we understand it, and you know, there's a lot of nuance to it. But if you want a singular kind of definition, um, it's about leadership, and this was true for uh, you know the major thinker of hegemony, Antonio Gramsci, um, Italian communist, writing mostly in the 30s. Yeah. Uh, is true for us as well. However, we're not necessarily thinking about leadership here in the sense of an individual leader or even an individual uh, or, or even a party lead. It's it's much it, you know it can consist of that and it often does consist of that, uh, but it's much more than that. It's about the ability to determine the direction of travel for a society, which could be on the global scale, it could be on a on a national scale or smaller, and. You know, this direction of travel is really about, you know, how is society changing? In what direction is it heading? And the ability to determine that, that kind of directionality, that process of change, um, that's hegemony. So when we say that neoliberalism ha kind of had a global hegemony from certainly from the early 1990s to, to, to kind of 2016, what we mean by that is that 
you know, throughout most of the world, the world was heading in a more and more neoliberal direction. It was heading more and more towards all of the hallmark uh, policies, all of the hallmark kind of cultural norms um, that we've described as being neoliberal in nature. Things like privatization, marketization, contracting out, um, you know, possessive competitive individualism, uh, and so on. Um, so that's the kind of very broad definition of what, what hegemony is. It's the ability of particular groups, and often, and, and this was certainly what Gramsci was interested in, you know, relatively small groups within complex societies to determine the direction of travel for society as a whole. And we often don't think about this, um, but it's, I think it's very important. We kind of take it as granted that relatively small groups of people are going to be in charge. Mm. These, uh, you know, these small coteries of uh, politicians, uh, journalists, business people, um, and so on, are going to be in charge. They're going to be determining the way that society develops. Um, but how is that possible? If, if, you, if we exist in, you know, complex, uh, you know, multifaceted, multi-ethnic, you know, uh, democracies, how, how, how is it that these relatively small groups and under neoliberalism, relatively unpopular groups... Uh, how are they able to actually achieve this? How could they create a you know a directionality for society as a whole on a global scale, even when most ordinary people absolutely hated it? I mean, you can kind of make sense of that if we're talking about an autocracy, because um, it's you know it, there's a vast uh, quantity of uh, coercion involved. But how does that work in a in a democracy? And that's kind of the interesting question. Um, and this is where um, hegemony really comes in. Yeah. And of course, we've already talked about one of the sort of classic answers to the question. How did they manage to make neoliberalism so globally powerful when it was never very popular? Uh, and it, it was partly just through sheer coercion. I mean, another very strong tradition of thinking about that uh, issue uh, is the tradition of thinking which would understand the answer to, in sort of ideological terms. Would, would say that, well, the way they've done it is by propagating neoliberal ideology through schools, through media, through the education system, so that people come to accept that neoliberalism is kind of the only way of, of thinking about the world and the only way of doing the world. And certainly, certainly you can say they've definitely tried to do that. And doing that, trying to do that has been a big part of it. I mean, some of the examples we give on the, in the book are things like reality television. Like the rise of reality television from the late 90s onwards is the kind of dominant form of TV entertainment. It replaces what had been the previous dominant form, which is various kinds of fiction, basically, soap operas and sitcoms. And the reality, almost all reality television, really has this kind of quite blatantly neoliberal view of the world. It probably tries to present a view of the world according to which the natural state for human beings is this kind of savage, paranoid competition with each other. Mm -hmm. And the people producing those shows, if you talk to them, yeah, they really, a lot of them, they, they deeply believe that's the truth of human nature that they're somehow exposing to the world, despite the fact that the situations those people are in are ridiculously contrived, actually. But also you see it in schools, you see it in the, you know, you see it in the, in, for example, in the promotion of standardised testing and highly competitive modes of assessment and ranking in education systems around the world. You see it in all these different contexts. You see it in things like digital platforms as well. So if you think about, uh, you know, if you think about things like uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, all of these platforms are, are heavily kind of uh, quantified. There are statistics. Um, they're effectively gamified as far as... Um, 
Yeah, you're, they're you're, all you're and they're encouraging you all the time to, to compete, being, yeah. to compete, exactly. to compete, and to compete polite. about making the number go up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in this kind of way, it's completely naturalised. You know, it's not something that most people would kind of question, but if you engage with that system and the system is designed for you to engage with it, um, it will promote a kind of um, individualistic, uh, competitive ethic, which is absolutely uh, of a piece with neoliberalism. Yeah. The thing is, though, I think where we would not we would differ from, or where our approach wants to complexify a that kind of um, critical critical approach, is we would say, well, that's all true, but it's also clearly not really true. We would think that most people in societies like ours or the states or place, wherever um, really end up believing this stuff. It's most people don't really completely internalize mm. neoliberal ideology to the point where they really believe it. I mean, think if you look at opinion, actually, if you look at sort of quantitative opinion polls, what you find is that most people don't believe it, but they think other, everyone else believes right. it. And this <laughs> sort know? of brings us back to this question of whether, you know, this question of whether, um, is this a case of, of, as the sort of classical Marxist would say, uh, you know, false consciousness? So the, 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 the false consciousness thesis is one which um, traditional uh, Marxism uh, is, is very ready to believe it's the idea that you know why is it that the working classes don't rise up revolt and institute socialism well it's partly uh because they 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 have false consciousness they 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 believe the ideas of the kind of the the ruling capitalist classes um and the job of left-wing politics marxist politics socialist politics is to go around and convince the people that they're wrong um, and to get them to embrace the kind of the reality of their situation, which is that their interests will be best realised by, you know, mounting a revolution and taking over the state and instituting socialism. So is what we're saying that? No, it's not quite that. Well, I think some people that's true. Yeah. For some groups, but if you look at most of the evidence is that the number of people, especially the number of working class people who, who fall into that category is relatively small. Uh, it's big enough that it's very hard to build larger solidarities you know there's enough people who believe that but most don't um and i think you know and i think our sort of uh, our general argument is the answer to the question is well how do these this small group how does this kind of neoliberal elite manage to get so many people to go mm. along with their program is that they have quite a complex approach and there's quite a complex set mm. of mechanisms some of which simply promote false consciousness in some people and especially actually in members of the elite themselves so you often have to really believe that they are good people mm. who are doing the best job they can by encouraging everyone to be a competitive entrepreneur like they are um, but for the most part most people we would say under neoliberalism go along with it um, partly because they learn to sort of defer to this ideology. Like we learn to recognise neoliberal norms as the norms of the institutions we have to work for, of the elites who manage those institutions. And we learn that we have to basically defer to them, even though we don't really believe in them. Um, but also, a, a really important way in which people have been persuaded to go along with it is they've just been given a load of stuff in return for going along with it, going along with it. I mean, it's something it's really easy to forget, but the expansion of consumer culture, the sort of expansions of our material culture, even since the mid-70s, mm. in the highly developed, overdeveloped world, have been really extraordinary. I mean, we're living 
I mean, relatively ordinary people with our huge TVs and our cheap flights and our, you know, much more diverse diets and our nice coffees. You know, we're living, <laughs> we're, we're, we're experiencing a kind of level of material luxury, which I think would have been sort of, you know, only available to decadent aristocrats like in the sort of late 19th century. And, and that's basically, that's it. That's what we've been bought off with. I mean, I, I, mean, I think that if, you, if there is a typical person in an advanced capitalist neoliberal uh, economy um, in the sort of late 20th, early 21st centuries, um, they are someone who basically sort of knows that this is all bullshit. You know, that the way we're, we're getting rid of all the good stuff that we built in the 20th century, like democracy and a welfare state and unions. And it's not making people happy. It's kind of making everybody crazy. But oh, we're getting the huge TVs and like really good video, really good computer games, and really nice <laughs> coffee. So, and there doesn't really seem to be anything you can do about it because, yeah. well, the Soviet Union collapsed and China, who knows what's going on there, but you mm. wouldn't really want to live there and rather than here. So what else are you going to do? And I think that is basically the norm. I think that's the kind of typical. It's a form of what we call in the book, borrowing the term from Gramsci, passive consent, as opposed to the active consent of people who are like really, really into neoliberalism and just love it, um, of whom there are some, but never that many. Yeah, and, van vanishingly small numbers. And that partly comes back to the question of the role of the professional political class. I mean, our argument would be that, well, of course, there's always a professional political class. But before the 1980s, the job, at least in for several decades in the 20th century, the professional political class is sort of an extension of the broader professional classes. You know, people who've gone to college, people who've got a degree, people who have salaries and do kind of professional, people in the public sector, people, you know, even relatively low rankings of teachers and social workers and such. But then one of the things that's happening from the 1980s onwards is really most even of the professional classes are going to have to be disciplined. They're going to have to be pushed into accepting neoliberalism because neoliberalism is not good. If you're a member of what, you know, sometimes people like, if you're a lower ranking member of what, you know, the Ehrenreich is called the professional managerial class, meaning like you're a school teacher or something, then the shift towards neoliberalism is not good for you. Like it's very bad for you. It means a huge, uh, you know, school teachers are kind of respected members of the community in the post-war period. It's a it's a well-paid job. It means a kind of deprofessionalization yeah. of lots of professions. Yeah, well, neoliberalism does. Yeah, yeah. neoliberalism it does. It, it means and essentially you mean you, you go you shift from a world in which being a school teacher, for example, is relatively well-paid, is respected, it's a graduate profession, it's seen as an important, a socially important role, to a job in which if you're a teacher, you're obviously some kind of a loser because why haven't you started your own business and why aren't you making loads of money and you know and 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 that is and that's you know and so uh, large groups of people who had been had had a kind of stake in administering the kind of hegemonic social order of the post-war period lose that stake from the 1980s onwards and they have to be disciplined and uh, similarly, you know, you could say in the post-war period in, in places like Britain, the States, Western Europe, you know, trade unions and trade union bureaucracies are part of the kind of are part of the collection of social groups and institutions, which is determining the direction of travel. Mm. From the night, from the early eighties onwards, labour unions are completely pushed out of that position. They're no longer part of that. Labour unions are the you know, sort of natural representatives of working people in a capitalist society. So there's all these social groups for who are just not really going to spontaneously come on board with this project. So this new, so our, the the professional political class, the neoliberal professional political class, has to take on a quite different character from the 90s and 80s onwards. It has to be this group of people who, to some extent, understand their role 
as being to to, to sell as much of a neoliberal program as they can mm. to a broadly reluctant public, mm. and also to judge on behalf of their real masters, who are basically the the most powerful capitalist forces, how much they can get away with, and how in terms of pushing that agenda, and when they have to pull back a bit, when you have to have like a new Labour government putting a bit of money to kind of alleviate child poverty, putting a bit of money into the schools, which are literally have their roofs collapsing for just a few years. Um, so this surround nation of hegemony is being this quite complex process. It's kind of managing the levels of consent to which, which um, people, um, you know, which you can persuade people or, or force people or trick people into uh, offering towards this ruling project, this leading project. Um, you know, our, that process really um, requires quite a lot of finesse and it also requires quite a lot of resources. And again, as we keep saying, from 2008 onwards, it just becomes less and less possible to do that. And that's, again, that comes back to that initial question of why that professional political class is in crisis, because they just don't have the resources available to them. They, they, they are, you know, with the declining profitability of corporations, of declining productivity, you know, increasing resource costs, which we're all living through right now, it's just they can't, they can't offer people as many people, the cheap TVs, the holidays. They've tried to. I mean, someone like me who's had a mortgage since 2010, they've done their best for, for the past 10, 12 years to bribe us into <laughs> continued complicity by effectively by effectively paying us to live in our houses. But mm. that, that's over now. That's done now. Yeah. And that's why things are really starting to kick off. Should we say a little bit more about passive consent? Because the other yeah. side of passive consent, it's not just about, you know, being being bought off by... Large amounts of kind of uh, sort of material rewards. Uh, it's also about you know what is it that you know, if we look at you know, any long-lasting system of power, what is it that it does over time? Well, it kind of transforms a lot of the the, the kind of fundamental infrastructural elements of society to reflect its values and to um, kind of regenerate them over time. So, w- what does that mean? Well. It means that essentially the kind of the structure of everyday life with its, you know, its decisions and its, and its incentives and disincentives uh, starts to kind of channel the average person towards certain kinds of behaviour. So even kind of outside any sort of questions of, you know, explicit belief or kind of um, political ideology um, or even, you know, necessarily reward, is this idea that, you know, all things being equal... The path of least resistance uh, will be to to you know live a life um, in in all of its kind of uh, richness that is essentially in line with neoliberalism. And how do they how how is it that they were able to achieve that? Well, it was by you know you, you change the laws, you um, you change the deep structures of the economy, you change the ways in which you know everything is is managed. Um, at the level of kind of management uh, beliefs and, and structures, you know, you change the kind of the technological systems of everyday life, all of these things, education systems and so on. And this just means that, you know, it's possible to resist. Resistance is not impossible. But it's a hassle. Yeah, it's going to be, co- it's going <laughs> yeah. to be costly and it might not be worth it. So this kind of path of least resistance is really the kind of like the most kind of the, yes. the, the most passive form that consent takes. It's simply... Going with the flow 
that society has, has, has constructed for you to take. So you end up with a situation where like TikTok is full of people promoting like hustle mindset, you know, get out and hustle or be a hustler. What does it mean to be a hustler? It means to be a kind of competitive entrepreneur in every aspect of your life. Someone who has to be th assessing every single aspect of your life in terms of profit and loss, yeah. um, which I have to say, if you think about it for a moment, like every single philosophical and religious tradition the human culture has ever produced would say, that's a horrible way to live. <laughs> that's like, that's going to make you crazy and it's going to make everyone around you hate you. Yeah. You know, everyone would, the Buddha would say that, Jesus would say that, you know, and, and it's just self-evident. Mm. But this is promoted as kind of an attractive way of being in the world because it, it's an absolutely a kind of consistent feature of neoliberal ideology. But also, it's not just ideology. It's not just that people are watching TikTok videos saying be a hustler and saying yeah I think I'll be a hustler yeah. they're also in a highly precarious labour market where their experience of everyday life is one whereby indeed you better hustle you know we do we, we all have to hustle I have to hustle you there know. will be bad consequences if you don't yeah hustle. no exactly I can't pay the mortgage if I'm not DJing as well as lecturing because the academic process you know sector has been so fiercely attacked um so and all that is, is because of the of, of very specific economic policies that have been pursued by governments for several decades. Now, it's not the, the creation of this highly of a highly precarious labour market in which everybody does sort of have to hustle just to pay the rent uh, isn't by accident, and it's certainly not a failure. This is one of the the most annoying things for us is you'll get you still get you get liberal commentators all the time. You get op ed writers in the Guardian and the New York Times constantly saying, "Oh, this isn't working. It's not working. It's, the system is broken. It's not broken. <laughs> this is the point. This yeah. was the objective. This was the whole point of everything that's happened. You know, in that's the, the, the point of." Bill Clinton mm. getting rid of welfare as we knew it was to engineer a situation in which everyone would have to live like that. Yeah. So and, it's, and this process is sort of twofold because it's, we're not necessarily saying that there was a grand conspiracy to induce this, although in some cases uh, there was. Um, <laughs> because on, on the one hand, you have kind of you know think tanks and certain um, uh, you know parts of the professional political class that are directly strategizing towards these ends. But also you have the other side of it, which is that, you know, businesses, uh, big business wants this because it means they can reduce their costs, they can make more profits. Um, and whether by explicit design or kind of, you know, it simply evolves that way, it has the effect, the ultimate effect is one, which is fairly similar of engineering a situation in which, uh, you know, certain groups are disempowered and certain groups are empowered. Yeah, and also, um, and importantly, even just specific individuals are empowered and disempowered in specific ways. Mm. I mean, one of the things that happens, and one of the, the real features of this of neoliberal hegemony is that we do all actually, literally, experience our lives in such a way that as consumers, we have a degree of agency and a degree of you know, capacity to, to feel free in the world. You know, we can choose, we get to choose coffees. You know, there, was, there wasn't, we, we didn't get to choose nice coffee. It was really hard to get nice coffee. I can remember, you know, when I was really young, like in the early 80s, it was, you couldn't get it. So that, that is a real thing. But in other, in other dimensions of our existence, as citizens, as members of political communities, as, as workers, as potential members of unions, you know, even just as members of 
you know families and, and or neighborhoods um we, we really we've uh, we've lost a lot of our capacity mm. to act in the world to have any change to change anything to have any effect over the world so i think that's also that's a really important part of it and I, but it's an important that i think that observation is an important corrective to a certain kind of left marxist critical tradition which we do we, indeed we should just say well it's just false consciousness for mm. people to think that um, they're consumers rather than workers. I mean, the fact is we are consumers as well as workers. And it is also true that we've been given all this freedom in our private lives and as consumers that previous generations didn't have. Yeah, and we've been given freedom over our, our private lives at the level of sexuality that previous generations didn't have. We've been given freedom of kind of lifestyle choice in ways that no previous human culture has ever tolerated. And that is all real but but it's but it's part of a package which means that we can't do anything we like as members of a workforce for example we can't have any kind of collective power and that's all i mean that is that is hegemony yeah so hegemony is this ability to kind of determine through many many different means all acting at once the overall direction of travel for a society yeah but you've we've already said we're not conspiracy theorists. No. We don't see hegemony as operating. It's not, hegemony doesn't operate through a committee of kind of capitalists and, you know, politicians deciding, yeah, this is what's going to happen. So how does it operate? Well, our basic idea in terms of how it operates is that these things take on, these directions of travel emerge to the extent that they, they, man, they express certain material interests. Yeah. How is it? Yeah, because there's a kind of question, well, if it isn't, you know, groups of individuals directly conspiring to produce this kind of world. And sometimes it clearly is. Um, I mean, you know, the Mont Pelerin Society, for example, is literally just a group of, you know, um, intellectuals, business people, media types conspiring to produce the kind of world that they want. Um, so, you know, how is it that, that that isn't just the case universally? Why Why is the world not just run by conspiracy? Well, um, in part, it's because there are other coordination mechanisms um, that enable, you know, people to, to to kind of across the world produce the kind of world that they want. And fundamentally, this is interest. This is political interest. It's it's um, it's that that it's common political interest that enable different groups of people across the world who are not always in in direct communication with one another to work in a kind of um, concordance to produce the kind of world that they want. Um, so the way we, the way you get around this kind of conspiratorial thinking is that, well, people are, are working together, even though they maybe are not directly coordinating, because they want the same things. And this brings us to the question of political interests. So one of the things we argue for in the book uh, is that to understand hegemony, to understand the way power works, you've got to understand um, what political interests are as the kind of uh, primary motor of political motivation. So why is it that people do the things they do in a political sense? You know, this could mean things like voting for particular parties. It could mean maybe not turning up to vote. It could mean why do people join certain social movements or, or, or other kinds of political organisations? Um, political motivation is a, is, is a sort of fundamental question. And certainly since 2016, since the kind of the rules of normal politics started to break down and kind of chaos emerge into the world... Um, Lots of people have been trying to think about, well, what is it that motivates people? Why have, why is it that suddenly it seems like people, you know, liked neoliberalism and now they like, you know, right-wing ethno-nationalist populism? And this is, this is very serious. Academics have, have kind of made their careers on trying to answer this question. And 
the answer that they that you know particularly in a in a kind of UK context, uh, but it's kind of spreading around the world. Uh, the idea is values. So they centre on a kind of, you know, what is it that's motivating people? Um, well, it doesn't seem to be things like, it doesn't seem to be class interests, which they would conceive of as being, you know, fairly traditional Marxist conception as, you know, the, depending on where you are in the system of production, whether you work for a wage or you own capital, you want different things. And that means you've got different political motivations. Um, it doesn't seem to be that. So what is it? Well, it's, 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 it's values. Um, and really, sort of a large part of the book is written as a polemic against this position and a defence of a particular kind of understanding of political interests as being kind of com- complex and, and non-essentialist. It might sound really obvious to say that what we think really motivates people in in politics is is a sense of their own material interests, like what's in it for them. But this is an approach that has really kind of fallen off the agenda of mainstream political science and mainstream political commentary in the past few years, that the kind of dominant approach uh, of both journalists and political scientists is to assume that um, the contest between, you know, Democrats and Republicans or between supporters and opponents of Brexit is a contest over competing sets of values. And our argument is basically that, well, I mean, people may say that they're, they're arguing over competing sets of values. But if you if you want to predict people's behaviour, really, generally, people speaking, people are behaving in alignment, in align. Speak, people are behaving in a way that is expressive of, of their sort of um, material interest and the interest that they're aligned with. Mm. Um, the, I think um, there's a sort of a history to thinking about those ideas, which um, it's specifically within the radical tradition, within which, as you said, uh, there's a kind of historical assumption within the Marxist tradition that if people are acting in line with their interests, they'll be acting in line with their class interests and therefore most people will be socialists. Mm. And then you observe that most people are not socialists. So you say, well, therefore, people must not be acting in accordance with their interests. They must be acting in accordance with something else, some irrational psychological identification with particular sets of ideas or something else. And And in more recent decades, this has converged with a kind of liberal approach, which also tends to see people as mostly motivated by... Uh, values and culture and our argument is that most of the, the the phenomena which people want to interpret in those ways are actually better interpreted in terms of complex and competing sets of interest like like you said so for example it is certainly true from a certain kind of marxian and socialist perspective which we would endorse that, for example, white workers in endorsing racist authoritarian political projects are voting against their interests to the extent that one can say that it would be rational for them to vote in accordance with interests, you know, the, 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 a different set of interests of theirs, which they would have, along with everybody else, in prosecuting some kind of social democratic or socialist project. But part of our argument is that, well, if, pe- if those people find themselves in circumstances where, as far as they can see, there is no rational, there is no plausible prospect of a social democratic or socialist program being implemented, then un- it is relatively rational for them to defend their sectional privileges as white workers against perceived threats to them. Now, that's not to say we're not in any sense endorsing 
a kind of people uh, people embracing racist or anti-immigrant or xenophobic programs. But our point is that under certain circumstances, to the extent that people don't see any any real chance of a socialistic or social democratic or communistic program being successful in their particular situation, then there's a certain rationality to people. Act, acting defensively in defence of what they see as a set of sectional interests and privileges in relation to other groups of workers. And that is not an observation that necessarily gives you a magic key in terms of how you then resolve that situation, how you then bring workers like that or citizens like that into progressive coalitions, but at least I think does give you a more productive starting mm. point. And all of the empirical evidence is that if you are, for example, you know, a socialist or a group of socialists trying to bring a group of workers away from a concert or citizens away from a conservative position into a radical one, then actually in the most effective way you can do that is not by telling them that their values are wrong, but telling them that they are not but persuading them that they are not acting in their own interests, that joining your project will be more in their interests. Because the problem with an approach that privileges values is is one where it's like, well, what do you do? If people just have these values, I don't know. So you, you might be thinking about something like, I don't know, patriotism. This is often a, a, a value that, that is oft kind of discussed. You know, if you're dealing with people who, for whom that is a value, how do you change their values? Well, you can't. So values-led approaches will tend to, you know... You scold them. Yeah, well, you either, <laughs> That's what you you either you scold, scold them yeah. or more likely, you just cater to it. You just think, well, how yeah. can we smuggle our politics in through this lens of values? How can we rebrand it to, yeah. to cater to those people? So it ends up with, with a kind of a politics that's completely reactive, doesn't really lead anything. Um, and, you know, in the case of, of parties like, you know, the Labour Party in the UK, maybe the Democrat Party in America, uh, is, is really unconvincing. Um, and so this is not a very productive way to think about things because you've got this, you know, values are just natural. Where have they come from? Nobody knows. People just have them. Um, you can't change them. You just have to cater to them. It's, it's not an approach which is, which is going to work. So instead you need to look, well, why is it that they express the views that we can kind of sum up as being this value? Well, it's probably because at some level that this is how they're perceiving their values. But the other thing is, is that, you know, we don't think that values are simple. It's not just that people have, you know, a certain type of person, a certain class or a certain identity group have a singular value that completely defines them. That's do you mean very... values or do you mean interests? No, 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 I mean interests. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let me start that again. Um, so the point is that we don't think that interests are simple. It's not the case that uh, individual members of a, of, of a class or an identity group have a singular interest that completely defines them. Um, instead, everybody has multiple interests. And part of the, the kind of the task of politics is to, you know, to help them to uh, come to understand which ones of those are more or less important and equally to kind of change the way in which they are thinking about them. So, you know, to expand the horizon within which they are understanding and, and kind of calculating their political interests yeah exactly so i mean in terms of the question of what we can do about all this i mean how you can how you can take advantage how the left can take advantage of the crisis of neoliberal hegemony and try to build something better to build a better alternative 
I mean, our answer in some ways is fairly abstract and it's, and how it's going to play out on the ground will vary between different contexts. But we do think that it's really important that we always keep that focus on how to build coalitions of interests, how you build coalitions of common interest, how you put together a bigger and bigger coalitions of people who recognise themselves as having a shared interest in the implementation of some other sort of project. And, I mean, this sounds very banal, sounds really obvious, but I would say... For example, if we compare the situations in the UK and the US, I think like right now, one of the key reason why uh, there is some very, very modest, but some reform apparently coming out of the Biden administration is because the Bernie Sanders movement was very successful with certain constituencies at building a sense that people, that the basis for this coalition was the shared interest of very diverse constituencies. By contrast, uh, the, the movement around Jeremy Corbyn in the UK was not particularly successful. At that. For the most part, people got involved in that coalition because they saw themselves as identifying with Jeremy's kind of personal values as a, you know, an, as a, as a man of the, as a very principled man of the left, mm. which was fine, which was important and on a certain level, but it also very much limited the scope of the social coalition of people mm. who felt that they really had a stake in that project. And I think that's one reason why that hasn't. At the moment, that seems not to have led to particularly uh, progressive outcomes. I mean, I think when we're, when we're trying to understand what is it that we can do, I mean, I think obviously you have to build around shared interests. Um, but you also need to think about, you know, there's a, there's been a big debate in the global kind of political left since the kind of the, the sort of 2011 era, which was, you know, a few years after the 2008 crisis, you saw the rise of these kind of digitally networked social movements like like the Occupy movement and, and many others since. Um, and you've seen this kind of, you know, a bit of a, a sort of dialectic or a conversation uh, between two poles. You know, what do we do? Do we try and take power in the streets as these kind of amorphous networks? Or do we try and you know, have essentially a kind of political entryist strategy of going all in on the most left candidates within the existing, you know, most powerful left-wing parties within a given state. So that would be, you know, Corbynism was just that strategy. Um, and interestingly, you know, large numbers of those people were the people that were previously endorsing the other strategy. They went fairly directly through that. Now you have a kind of a period of, certainly in the UK, of sort of political disillusionment, um, what does this mean? What's the what's the correct approach? I mean, we would generally argue that you need to do, you kind of need to do both. So elections are obviously important, but I think we would identify that, you know, even if Jeremy Corbyn and, and his Labour Party had won in 2017 or 2019, they wouldn't have been able to achieve their agenda. They didn't have, you know, the, the power within their own party, uh, parliament, let alone the kind of broader st kind of structures of power within the, you know, economy, media, um, and so forth. So clearly you do need to win elections, ultimately, but you also need to do a lot of other things as well. You do need to, um, you know, there absolutely does need to be kind of powerful social movements. Um, but also there needs to be a sense of, well, you know, understanding where are the power centres in society. Some of these are amenable to kind of democratic contention. You can have votes and you can win those votes, then you'll, you'll have power. But your kind of your ability to affect change, to affect that direction of travel, will often depend on other institutions and other power centres. So, you know, thinking about where are those kind of nodal points which are going to have kind of maximum uh, efficacy. 
So some of these will be electoral, but others will be, you know, uh, you know, non-electoral. Some of them might not even be ostensibly political at all. I mean, obviously, we can think of the media because of their kind of ability to, you know, shape views in various ways. Um, but you can also think, you know, much more broadly than that. Um, so we might want to think about things like, you know, education, um, the you know, management schools and, and, and the kind of common senses that get... But also unions. But also, yeah, exactly. <laughs> also unions, also the kind of, you know, people that are determining the kind of architecture and policies that are, you know, influencing the financial system, uh, the world of kind of big technology. All of these are relative local power centres that influence the direction of travel of society as a whole. And the ability of any kind of left or progressive government to get what it wants done done will partly depend on its ability to also hold power in those um, different kind of institutional uh, centres as well. Yeah, it always sounds really obvious when we say this, but like every time I do a talk anywhere in the world about any of this stuff, my, the, my sense is that at least a third of the people in the room are coming in with the assumption that you have to make a choice between... Mm electoral politics, street politics, yeah. militant trade unionism, you know, militant labour organisation. And it, it's a, um, so it might seem banal and obvious. Hopefully it will do to a lot of people listening. But our, the basic answer to that question is, no, it's all of them. Mm. You have to do all of those things. Because partly because the structures that we're up against are so resilient and themselves so complex and multifaceted. That's the only way we're going to be able to challenge them. So it isn't the case that, I mean, in a, in a lot of kind of progressive thinking or, or leftist thinking, there's often this ideal type organisation or strategy which is endorsed. And, and if you kind of look at empirical reality, if you look at political history, that's just not the way that things, you know, ultimately work for the most part. Um, and if you want to overturn an existing hegemony or in our present situation, you want to win a hegemonic crisis, you're going to need to have influence um, to have leadership across a whole variety of different um, institutions and, and, and modalities. And I think the other thing is to think about, you know, where, where are, the, are, the, are the key points of influence in terms of flows within, within society? So things like energy, money, resources, information, ideas, um, focus on capturing those those um, those institutions those organizations uh, that are responsible for governing those flows and this will this will give you a large uh, a large amount of influence so we don't have a kind of single ideal type organization but we have a hegemonic strategy which is um, you know to focus on all of these different areas all of these different um, ways of holding power and if these lock in together, then you would get a situation in which a socialist government could implement its programme because it would have enough of the media, it would have enough of all of these other important institutions um, under its sway to present this programme as being achievable. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much for uh, listening to and or watching the Verso podcast.